0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Melissa Goldberg-Mintz, author of uh, Child Been Traumatized. Uh, Melissa Goldberg-Mintz shares specific critical information and insights into what trauma looks like at different ages why some kids exposed to the same event react very differently, how to help a child through trauma triggers, and more. Most importantly, in her book, she shows parents how to ensure that kids don't feel constrained by fear and can face future challenges with hope and resilience. She's trained in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and is a clinical assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it seems to me, um, Dr. Mintz, that we kind of live in a sea of trauma, all of us—not just the children, but the adults—and that we are constantly tra- being traumatized in uh, in our daily lives, whether it's COVID and viruses, and war, and all of, and climate change. Uh, how does that? I mean, I'm just—how does that impact, or does it impact? Uh, children in their individual lives?
1: Yeah, that's a great question to start us off. (laughs) Um, I would say I would give you the classic psychologist answer um, in response, which is it depends. So um, I would say that, yes, all of these things impact children and impact them differently. Uh, So some children might be, you know, whereas some might be traumatized by things that have happened during the pandemic, during COVID, um, by all of this, other children, for other children, it might just be, you know, exposure to an adverse event, but they're fine. They go on to heal naturally, um, no need for therapy or anything like that. So I would say, um, definitely on a case by case basis, some children have been traumatized and others, uh, you know, barely face them. So it depends on the
0: individual child. It depends on the family, uh, really the that's the context that we're talking about, and particularly in your book, has your child been traumatized? How to know and uh, what to do to promote healing and recovery? So the goal is what for parents to really be able to recognize that your child has been traumatized and then to you want have to understand what the symptoms are and then to be able obviously to be able to deal with it and to do something about it. So let's. Take a look at some of those, what we need to address with our children. And, and, and I think you kind of alluded to this. You can have three kids in one family and one are, one may only be traumatized by what's happening in the family and the other two not. It depends on their own constitution and, and uh, a lot of different other variables, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think I give the example in my book of a, a car accident. And yeah, let's say there were three children in a family, all were in the exact same car accident, um, but one might go on to be traumatized while the other two heal naturally. So, uh, so let's talk about what, what, how can we
0: recognize Um, let's say the difference between PTSD and, uh, just maybe a natural reaction to say an accident, but they're not the kid, the child's not necessarily traumatized. Uh, whereas another child may then suffer from PTSD. What do parents have to be aware of? What do we have to look for?
1: Sure. So what I tell the parents is to just look for a change in baseline. Uh, so this could be, you know, you've got a good sleeper who all of a sudden is now trying to avoid sleep or is having nightmares or is sleeping too much. Um, you know, a kid who loved breakfast, lunch, and dinner and was enthusiastic about snacks now saying that they're not hungry. A kid who used to love spending time with friends who now prefers to spend the weekends alone in his room by himself. Uh, so really any changes from baseline uh, that seem to linger. So say you've got a kiddo who you know just experienced something terrifying and that night they have a nightmare about it. I would say that that is not so concerning and actually might be quite normal. Um, but if these changes from baseline persist, if they linger, uh, then that would tip me off that um, you should probably cons- at least consider that your child might have been traumatized and think about professional help. And are we
0: looking for a pattern of behavior? You're talking about differences in, in per, you know, personality changes or, and like you say, a kid who suddenly wants to be in their room when they were outgoing before and wanted to play with friends. And I, I'm assuming there some kind of a pattern begins to develop in terms of that change in behavior. Sure.
1: Well, if we're thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder, as you had mentioned, um, there's a few different things, specific things we'll look for. Uh, So one is negative thoughts and feelings. So feelings like fear, horror, anger, guilt, shame, negative thoughts like, you know, the world is a completely safe, unsafe place or people can't be trusted, things like that. Um, Also symptoms, uh, we call them Intrusive re-experiencing symptoms, so things like you know nightmares, flashbacks, having images pop up in their head when they don't want them to be there. Um, also, uh, hyperarousal symptoms, so things like hypervigilance or just sort of jumpiness, uh, feeling like your child is more jumpy, more on edge, having a hard time with concentration, that sort of thing. Um, or just avoidant symptoms, so trying really hard not to get near anything that might remind them of the terrifying thing that
0: happened. You talk about being able to handle, as parents, loving parents, um, handle helping their child recover from a trauma mm-hmm. in your own home as opposed to getting professional help. How can you? How do you know when to seek professional help? as a parent?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that is such an important question. Um, so uh, the parents that I think don't need, I'll start with the parents who I think don't necessarily need to seek professional help. Um, and that is, uh, you know, uh, I get a parent in here in my office, at least once a week who drags a kid in, who has experienced something that the parent perceives as really scary, but it's something that didn't phase the child at all. Um, So these are things like um, even the loss of a relative, say, in a terrifying or gruesome way. Uh, Sometimes if the kid didn't know the relative and wasn't exposed to any of those aversive details, they might be fine, whereas the parent has thoughts like, oh my goodness, my my child must be traumatized. So what I say to those parents is that the majority of children in our country do experience some type of adverse event before their 18th birthday. But the good news is that most of them heal naturally on their own. Um, And so I would say that if your child has experienced something terrifying, but you know, you're not really seeing a change in baseline from their behaviors, or maybe you did, but you know, after a week, their sleep got back to normal. So did their appetite, those sorts of things. Those are the kids who don't need to come to therapy. Uh, But in terms of the kids that do, so I would say if you're seeing those changes in baseline and it's interfering with their day-to-day life and it's something that's been going on for a little bit, then therapy is advised. So
0: what you're saying Mm -hmm. is it could be terrifying to the parents or they project Mm -hmm. their fears onto their kid and the kid really isn't that that upset. As you say, they don't know the person that much. They don't attach all the other emotions to the event that the parents do. So... uh, it's not necessary to for the say for the child to be in, to to get therapy. Let's talk. What are the different? What are the most common traumas? What I mean, you're in your practice. What do you see? Uh, you mentioned car accident, but there are obviously a myriad of others. What are the most common ones?
1: Yeah. So, other than car accidents, let's see. Um, natural disasters has been a big one. I'm living in Houston, Texas, and so for a while, we were dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, but, you know, natural disasters like hurricanes, um, big storms, earthquakes, those sorts of things. Um, what else? So things going on inside the home, witnessing domestic violence is a big one. Um, having a parent with mental illness um, is an ad- can be considered an adverse event. Um, What else? Bullying at school, depending on what's going on there. Um, Let's see, violence in a dating relationship is unfortunately very common right now, um, as is child sexual abuse. So all of those sorts of things are things that I see on a day-to-day basis in my practice.
0: And also you mentioned that depending on what developmental stage or age a child is makes a huge difference in terms of how they experience the trauma. I'm thinking, and I always bring my grandchildren up as examples. But they uh, they uh, quarantined with me, and they were two twins, two, mm. and the and their older brother was four. And wow. at that age, they were not traumatized. They were really not in school full time. Uh, what can <laughs> be better than staying with their parents and their grandparents? Uh, so to them, it was right. kind of a joyous situation because here everybody that they loved was home every day with them. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, but would have been very different. Let's say if they were eight or 10 or 14 or 16, right. a very different experience and the responsibilities of the parents would have been very different. So I think that's a really, to me, that's a good example. Um, so there wasn't, I mean, you know, we had enough space and, you know, the, the, uh-huh. those kinds of things. So um, they were happy. Yeah, that's an example.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, that's a terrific example. And and yes, so what we know is like typically what traumatizes the really, really young ones is separation from their primary attachment figures uh, or when, you know, say like a mom or dad or someone that they live with um, is injured and has to be hospitalized and they're suddenly separated from them. That's the kind of thing that really impacts the little ones, but having just more quality time with mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa yeah, oh my gosh, um, the early pandemic was great for some of our really little ones. Uh, and at the same time, you're right, those those older kids who maybe were uh, got annoyed at mom or dad or whoever they were living with and turned to their friends as an outlet, now sort of not being able to do that in person anymore, that had a huge impact on their mental health.
0: Yeah. Did you get a lot of those, let's say, teenagers in your practice who didn't uh, well, first of all, not being in school and not having all of the social, socialization needs met for at least a year—that's one thing. Plus, all the academic needs. Um, what um, did you do? You think many? I don't know. This is kind of asking you for a statistic. Do you think that this was horrific for most students put in that position, or that some it helped them to strengthen their resilience and? Um, learn how to cope so that it helped them to be if they got the right kind of uh, support uh, stronger emotionally once they had, you know, got back into a more normal routine.
1: Sure. So actually what I saw more than trauma in teens uh, with regard to the pandemic was social anxiety. Um, I would say for a while that was like more than half of my practice. So these were kids who maybe were a little bit socially anxious before the pandemic began and then, um, you know, when they switched to virtual schooling, they were able to avoid all of the things that made them feel anxious. So in the short term, they actually felt better. But then when it was time to get back to in-person school, oh, my goodness, they just felt horribly anxious. Um, all of those social muscles that they, you know, had been struggling to build up had atrophied atrophied, um, because of the lack of exposure. So in other
0: words, whatever the issues were before the pandemic, which is, um, it, and the negative, well, now we're talking about some of the negative ones were exacerbated during the, that they weren't uh, during the pandemic, maybe not right, right during the pandemic when they had to get, yeah, because that they, um, it sort of put a band-aid on the problem, I guess is what you might say. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but it was worse. So, yeah. And, and are there any other, I mean, you mentioned being in Texas, natural, natural disasters, which, you know, with climate ta- change, I think we're going to have more and more of those. Um, right. Yeah. So, you know, what traumatizes us, maybe that's what I sort of alluded to in the beginning, is, is has changed as a society. It's evolving, for, for you know, whether it's climate change or viruses or, you know, all of the issues that we've been talking about. But, you know, I'm thinking also I was going to ask you this question because I know each generation has um, examples of situations where children are traumatized. Take World War II, for instance, uh, where Mm -hmm. people were, you know, fathers died and brothers died during the war or children were separated from their families. Um, Was that different qualitatively than what's happening now? Um, or? Is it the sure, sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's a great question. So um, earlier in our discussion, we were talking about how different people can be exposed to the same event and some might be traumatized and others might not. And um, people often wonder why that is. And this is something we alluded to, but didn't quite get to yet. And that was that there are a number of risk and protective factors that can either help protect someone against developing trauma after they've experienced an adverse event um, or make them more vulnerable to developing trauma. Um, And I would say that the number one protective factor is having Um, you know, a warm, consistent, reliable relationship with a trusted adult. So whether that's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, just somebody who's a primary attachment figure. And I would say for the kids who have that, they, they fare much, much better. Um, And so when we're thinking about, you know, how each generation got exposure to different types of adverse events, uh, I would say the ones that impact those primary relationships, those are the ones that might sting a little bit more. So, um, you know, for a family who fared well in COVID, didn't, didn't lose any family members, didn't have any additional stressors, like financially or anything like that, and just spent a lot more time together, that, yeah, those kids would be a lot more protected. But what we know is that for a lot of families, You know, they might have lost a family member, which would be could be horribly traumatic. At the same time, we know that rates of domestic violence increased uh, during the pandemic, and so for a child witnessing that, that might be horribly traumatic for them. Um, And you know, so what we know, I would say, is that it's super individual. And so, but but really, anything that is impacting that the safety felt in that primary attachment relationship, that would be really um, a huge risk factor for developing trauma. Mm
0: -hmm. And so I'm assuming that's what you see in your practice. I mean, it doesn't have to, and it doesn't necessarily have to be mom, dad, grandma, grandma. It can be be any loving, supportive person, I'm assuming, right? That that child is attached to.
1: Adoptive parents,
0: yeah. What about relationships with uh, people outside family, for instance, like a teacher, or a coach, or somebody at, you know, a church or synagogue, or somebody that the child has a a good relationship with? What is that? Yeah. What kind of an impact does that have?
1: Yeah, I think that that can have a huge impact. So, um, when we think about, so I would say that, of course. Every kid needs a primary attachment figure, and ideally that's somebody that they live with, but when we think about these other figures, you know, in religious communities, somebody in the neighborhood, something like that, um, that is something that I like to refer to as community support, and that can also be a huge protective factor against developing trauma after exposure to an adverse event. So I would say that, yes, those are wonderful and can can also be seen as a huge protective factor. So community
0: support. So it's important for us to support our community so that they can do that as well. Right. Um, and I don't, so it's within the family and also within the community that they need those kinds of support. Um, what your practice, um, I was going to say, can you give us examples, specific examples, not necessarily obviously giving away the, the particular person, but Uh, of some of the most traumatic situations that you've had to deal with as a therapist and have had a good outcome related to the way that your treatment, (laughs) how's that?
1: Sure, sure. So actually, um, the example I'll give you is the one that I start with in my book, in the introduction, Um, and of course changed a lot of the details to protect patient identity. Uh, But sometimes I'll see kids who have experienced multiple adverse events so, um, you know, I think I've seen, being in Houston, I've seen many kids who have been displaced by hurricanes and natural disasters, and on one occasion, I saw a kid who was impacted by that and then also experienced bullying at school, and then on their way to see me for their first appointment um, was in a car accident. So, gosh, the, you know, I just really feel for those kids who experienced many different types of adverse events before hitting their 18th birthday. You know, but what we know is that healing is possible, especially um, if you've got a warm supportive caregiver um, and if, if we've got trauma symptoms, professional help. So I think that having those two things as well as some of the other protective factors we talked about can go a long way in helping a child heal.
0: So, and I'm visualizing in these very vulnerable communities those kinds of situations don't necessarily exist, and um so there are just multiple issues upon multiple issues that these kids have to deal with poverty, nobody supporting them, uh, not enough food, poor living conditions, right. all of those kinds of things and and of course, that's the worst kind of situation you can one can be in um, right yeah so but I'm assuming that you've had you've had good outcomes. How long does it take when you're treating a child, let's say, who's been, who's had, you described the one, you said in the, in the beginning of the book, who had uh, multiple issues, including a car accident on the way to seeing you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, how long does it take? Or what kind of, I, I guess I'm going to say, what's the, the time timeframe for, for these kids in terms of treatment? How long?
1: Sure, sure. So, um, it depends on how you're treating them. I would think that, you know, one of the gold standard approaches for treating children who have been traumatized is called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And there can be a, a range in how long that takes. I would say that the, the quickest I've ever seen that completed is in about eight sessions, but, you know, more average is about 12 and then at the long end, something closer to 18. 18 sessions. So, um, with one session a week, you know, somewhere from eight weeks to 18 weeks.
0: And how difficult is it to keep them in therapy, even get them to therapy, having someone provide them with the transportation to therapy. I'm trying to look at, uh, you know, the practical uh, things that get in the way of these kids getting help. Um, that's been my experience as a social worker in the in the past years. Um, you know, and even yes. keeping them so that they all at least get eight sessions or twelve sessions or eighteen sessions.
1: Right, absolutely, I agree with you. Yeah, it's hard. It is. It is definitely hard. And actually, that's that's one of my like personal soapbox issues. I would love for us to be able to get this type of therapy into the schools, because that would get around a lot of those barriers. We wouldn't have to worry about parents you know, transporting their kids to therapy after school or at some odd hour, you know, during their work day because um, kids already go to school every, every day. So, um, yeah, but, but yes, I, I totally agree.
0: And what about Zoom? Do you do Zoom counseling or therapy with kids?
1: Yes, so um, I don't use Zoom. I use a different software that is HIPAA compliant. But um, but yes, I think virtual virtual therapy is a great fit for kids who might have a hard time making it in in person. Um, and and earlier in the pandemic, especially with kids who um, were medically vulnerable, it was such a great tool to be able to use to help keep them safe, but also make sure their emotional needs were being met.
0: So when you say HIPAA compliant, what do you mean? I mean, are you're saying Zoom is not HIPAA compliant, but the software that you use right. is. So what are the what is the criteria for that?
1: Sure. So I don't know if you remember, this was a big issue early on in the pandemic, but people would I can't and I can't remember what the actual term was. It was something like Zoom bombing, like people just dropping in to random Zoom sessions Um that, you know, where they didn't know anyone who was in the Zoom session. So I'm not sure what that was called, but that was happening. Yes. And so, of course, you would not want that. That would just be horrible if that happened during someone's therapy session. So I just use a software um, that's a, a bit more secure uh, and has more protections in place um, than just like the, the free Zoom software, which is which is a wonderful software, I'm not bashing that in any way. Um because I think it's wonderful, and I'm sure that there are other versions where where that would not happen. but um, yes, I do not think it was necessarily designed for that type of therapy in mind.
0: Yeah, well, that's good to know. Actually, I was not aware of that, so thank you. Uh, oh, we have a couple minutes yeah. left, and that uh, so I want to. Um, Make sure that you give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about the book and about you. And the title of the book is Has Your Child Been Traumatized? How to Know and What to Do to Promote Healing and Recovery. And we've been talking to Dr. Melissa Goldberg-Mintz.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. So um, my favorite website for child trauma is the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. So that's just nctsn.com. There is a wealth of information out there. Um, and then also feel free to check out my personal website, which is com. Great. Thanks
0: for being on the show today. Lots of really good information. Thank you.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me.